That's good. Let's pray together. God, thanks for being so very good to us. Uh, Lord, the, the words we just sang are true. I, I fear that sometimes we take them for granted. Um, everything we have is because of you. So would you remind us of that this morning? Remind us of that often. Uh, I pray that, God, you would do wonderful things here today as we look at um, a very deep, <laughs> uh, important passage of Scripture. And Lord, I, I pray that in the moments where we don't have answers, God, that we would look to you for answers. I pray that in the moments where we think we have answers, that we would submit ourselves to you even in those moments. I pray you would open our eyes to see the things that we can't see without you, and that you would open our ears so that we would hear directly from you. I pray you'd do a work in our hearts so that we would love you more when we leave here than when we came in. Thanks for Christ. Um, that's not a throwaway. That's real. Thank you for Jesus. It's in his good and precious name I pray. Amen. Amen. Why don't you um, grab your Bibles, go to Colossians chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, uh, there's some available back in the back of the room. You can uh, help yourself. I want to encourage you to make sure you have a Bible. And, and, and honestly, if you have your, your electronic device, just navigate over to Colossians chapter 1. That's fine and good as well. There is um, there's some work to do today, so I hope you're ready to listen fast. Um, we're going to dive in, dig in, and, and try to get what we are supposed to get out of this passage together Colossians 1, verse 15, just, a, just a by way of reminder, what it is that we're doing as we walk through the book of Colossians, we're trying to focus on what Paul focused on. And what Paul was focusing on in the book of Colossians is actually twofold. You've got what happens below the surface of the soil and what happens above the surface of the soil. And so, so I think our, our image kind of graphically portrays that for us and helps us remember that what, what Paul's doing in this book is he's uh, trying to teach a church in Colossae and he's saying, okay, so, so I know it's all fine and good to look at the church tree and the fruit and the leaves, and that's great, and we'll get there. But none of those th things happen apart from getting below the soil and digging in and, and taking care of the roots of that, that plant, that tree. So last week, we began by looking at one of the roots called grace, and we were reminded that in Jesus Christ, we have been qualified to enter into uh, the, the saint's inheritance in the light, something that none of us are actually qualified for in and of ourselves, but because of Jesus, we've been made qualified, and we've been rescued by the, from the domain of darkness. We've been transferred into the kingdom of the Son He loves, and we have redemption, the very forgiveness of sins because of what Jesus did. In a nutshell, that's grace. It's the picture of what we have, although undeserved, but what we have because of Christ. So to today, um, let, me, let me do this. Let me read the text. We're going to start in verse 15, so I'll read the text, and then I'll kind of explain to you where we're going, and we'll jump in together and, and get our work done together, all right? Um, hey, I hope you're ready. This is a fantastic text of Scripture that I am going to do horrible disservice to by trying to get through it in 30 minutes. So, um, yeah, but I'm praying God forgives me. Verse 15 says this, He is the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn over all creation. Everything was created by him in heaven and in earth, the visible and the invisible, thrones and dominions, rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. Jesus is before all things, and by him all things are held together. 
Jesus is also the head of the body, the church. He is the the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through Jesus to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated and hostile in your minds expressed in your evil actions, but now he's reconciled you by his physical body through his death to present you holy, faultless, and blameless before him. If indeed you remain grounded and steadfast in the faith and are not shifted away from the hope of the gospel that you heard, the gospel has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and I, Paul, have become a servant of it. So as we're looking at this very deep portion of Scripture, what we need to remember is that in the Colossian church at this time, there was either a um, intentional false teaching that was occurring in the church that Paul's fighting against, or there was a, a, a rather just kind of come as you are, just as you go, you pick up and, and, and assimilate different pieces of other religions and other thought processes that were brought into their belief about who Jesus was and what the gospel was and, and what it meant for their lives. And so they were, they were just kind of bringing all these different things in. And so, so what Paul is doing is we're going to look at the roots of the gospel and we're going to dig into them and we're going to pour into them. And I want you to remember these things. Because the, the Colossian church is, is falling for all of these things that are in addition to Jesus. And so what we need to do is, is to deal with the fact that the Colossian church, and at times Uniontown Bible Church, forgets what it is that Jesus accomplished. And forget who Jesus really is at all. So th- those are the two roots that I want to look at. The two roots are what did Jesus accomplish? And who Jesus really is. And I am actually going to do something crazy. I'm going to work almost backwards through the text. I'm going to start in verse 19 of what we read. In verse 19, it begins by telling us that, that what Jesus accomplished is this, reconciliation. Verse 19, God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So what, what's happening here is, is Paul is saying there is a reconciliation that occurs. And what you need to understand is this reconciliation is over all things. It's going to be a little difficult to wrestle with that a little bit, but I want to dive into that. What does it mean that, to reconcile all things? In order to understand that, you need to go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. You see the fall of Adam and Eve occur, and as a result of the fall, you see all of creation has been cursed. See, all of creation is bearing the scars of the fallenness of humanity. So no matter how beautiful it is, and think about that for a minute, no matter how beautiful that sunrise is that you saw, no how, how beautiful the, the sunset is that you saw, no matter how beautiful the mountainscape, no how, how beautiful the, the snowfall is, for those of you who still think snow is beautiful, um, but, but no matter how beautiful that is, all of that is tainted by sin, and it's not perfect. It's not as beautiful as it could have been. And so as we look around, what we find is creation is broken. It's broken. How do you know that? Well, you just got to look. Weather has become destructive. Disease, it's common. Childbirth hurts, or so I'm told. Never, never experienced that myself, but you know, 
Did you know, this is a little side thing, did you know that the Church of Scientology actually teaches its women that when they have babies, they are to remain totally quiet? We, we went a different route with our childbirth. I don't know about you guys. We, we tried the other to see what would happen, but that was free. Um, but, but even that, the pain in childbearing, that's a picture of the fall. That's a picture of, of sin entering into something that is so beautiful and so, so perfect, and yet sin has caused it to become imperfect and painful and filled with sorrow. So, so everything that's been created is separated from God, estranged from God because of the fall, and it needs to be redeemed, or, or, or here in our case, it needs to be reconciled, reunited, and fixed. Um, sin has um, ultimately defaced everything that God made good. But, but through Jesus and, and in His blood, which was shed on the cross, His work on the cross undoes the consequences of sin in creation. And, and I know some of you maybe not there yet, so let me help you. In Romans 8, we're told that all of creation moans and groans for the day that it is brought back into perfection. All of creation. You, you look at Isaiah chapter 35 and it tells us that, that someday when, when this is brought to full fruition, when all of the fullness has come, and Isaiah 35 tells us the, the desert is going to bloom into wildflowers. That there's going to be sweet wine just pouring off the mountains. You get to Isaiah chapter 11, and this is, this is one of those most misquoted verses in all of Scripture. Did you know that there's no place in Scripture that talks about the lion laying down with the lamb? I have a poster at work. That, you'll be fine, don't worry. Isaiah chapter 11 tells us the wolf and the lamb will lie down together. The, the leopard will lie down with a goat. That's close. Different poster, but that's close. <laughs> Isaiah 11 tells us that in that day, when it all becomes perfect again, a cow and a bear are going to hang out together. It tells us that a lion will be, will be chewing on straw, that an infant will play with, with poisonous snakes and be unharmed. Why? Because when, when the fulfillment of this reconciliation in its totality comes to us, all violence is gone and all effects of the fall are non-existent. So when it tells us here that when, what Jesus did through the, the work on the cross, he, he did, he reconciled us, but he has reconciled all things back to God. But he's also reconciled you. Look at verse 21. Once you were alienated and hostile in your minds expressed in your evil actions. Let's be clear. If I was to stand in front of the average person and say, you are hostile towards God, no one thinks they're hostile towards God. Nobody. Everybody's like, well, you know, I, I, I compare myself to other people and I'm doing pretty good, so God and I should be good. The problem is, is that the unit of measurement we use um, is, is, is really unfair. We kind of stack the deck in our favor. So we take our strengths and we're like, you know, I pray a lot. And then we look at somebody else and we're like, and they don't cut their grass. So I'm better than them. So God's going to accept me. But that's not how God does things, is it? That's not, that's, not, that's not the way God lays out a unit of measurement. So, so God's um, unit of measurement is simple and effective. He says, here, let me give you this. Ten commandments. So take the ten commandment quiz. What did you score? Hey, bad news. Everybody, zero out of ten. 
No, man, no, no, no. Okay, I may lie. Maybe I don't honor my mom and dad the way I should. Okay, I covet a little, but that's just because I wish my football team was as good as yours, Frank. See, see? just got to slip that in there. My wife told me after first service, actually, her team's the best team and I should just be quiet, so whatever. So, so, but wait, I'm not lying. I mean, I'm lying. Sorry, I take it back. <laughs> well, I'm not lying about the Patriots. I'm, uh, I may struggle with lying. I may, I may struggle with being honorable to my, my parents. I may struggle with coming, but I don't murder. I, I don't commit adultery. Oh, bad news. See, as, as Jesus hears you talk about the Ten Commandments, he says, oh, you don't murder, but I'm going to tell you this at the Sermon on the Mount. You are angry and hate somebody. You're guilty of murder. Oh, but I don't commit adultery. Yeah, um, about that. If you look at another person who's not your husband or your wife and you look at them with lust in your heart, you're guilty of adultery. There's a beautiful picture there in the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus is giving us. He's saying, listen, God isn't after um, behavioral modification. God's after your heart. And, and so, so as we go into those things, we're like, okay, wait, no, hold on. But I'm not hostile. I don't do those things. No, I'm going to tell you this right now. When you murder, when you commit adultery, when you covet, what you're doing is you're telling God he isn't good. I mean, think about that. When I'm angry with somebody, I may not murder them. I mean, I don't walk around every day and be like, you know, I should murder that guy. Oh, victory today. I didn't kill anybody yet. That's not what I mean, okay? So, I mean, but, but when I'm angry in my heart and guilty of murder in God's eyes, it's, it's a simply a, a picture of me saying, listen, that person, I, I have no time for that person because they didn't listen to me. They didn't pay attention to me. They didn't do what I wanted them to do. They, they didn't drive the way I wanted them to drive. They didn't give me the gift that I wanted. So I'm angry at them. And you know what I'm doing? I'm saying, God, I'm not happy with the person that you put in my life to serve me, the one who's sitting on the throne. When I commit adultery or look at somebody else with lust, what I'm doing is saying, God, this wonderful gift that you have given me and my spouse isn't good enough to serve this, the Almighty. Hey, guess what? When you're trying to take God's throne, that's hostility. And so as, as Paul looks at this, he says, you were alienated. You were separated from God. You were hostile against God. And so, so you're making an accusation against God in that way. And that's how broken we are. We are so messed up. And, and somehow we have fooled ourselves into thinking that we can walk into God's presence with some form of righteousness that we can concoct on a good weekend. The problem is this. We need a righteousness that's better than our best day. Because even on our best day, we fall short. But thankfully, God brings about reconciliation. God looks at us at our worst and loves us the best. God looks at us and he heals the ruptured relationship. He, how does he do that? He, he sends him, his son, Jesus Christ, who, who willingly takes our place on the cross so that in that moment we can experience a, a real theological technical term for you is double imputation. The idea is this. As Jesus went on the cross in my place, all of his righteousness and sinlessness was given to me, imputed to me. And in exchange, all of my filth, all of my sin, all of the wrath that I deserved was put on Jesus, imputed to Jesus. And so he absorbed that like a sponge for me. 
That's double imputation. He, he gave us his righteousness and he took God's wrath for us. That, that glorious exchange that has occurred. And, and in that moment, what has occurred is that God looks at you differently. He looks at you as forgiven, as loved, cleansed by, by, by the, the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. And those sins aren't just your past sins. Not just the sins that, that you were committing and then you came to know Jesus and you don't do those things anymore. Now he's talking about the sins of today. The sins of tomorrow, the sins of next week. All of your sins are fully covered by the cross of Jesus. And the resurrection is the proof that the bill has been paid in full. So, so when God looks at you, he sees Jesus' righteousness. He doesn't see yours or your attempt at righteousness. He sees the righteousness of Christ. Let, let's look at verse 23, which is a verse that I really wish wasn't in here, actually. Um, it's not an easy one to understand completely. So verse 23 says, let me go back to 22. He has reconciled you by his physical body through his death. And what he's done, he's presenting you holy, faultless, and blameless before him. If indeed you remain grounded and steadfast in the faith and are not shifted away from the hope of the gospel that you heard. If you remain. Um, what in the world is Paul saying there? Okay, I'm going to nerd out for a couple seconds with you, okay? So just humor me for a second. So in the Greek language, we don't have anything like this in the English language. Other than, I was thinking about this morning, maybe sarcasm. I can say something sarcastically, and you can understand it's sarcasm, and it helps prove my point, prove my argument, right? So, so I, I don't know. I, I can't think of one off the top of my head. So I could say, you know, oh, yeah, well, you know, because it's so very warm outside, the flowers aren't going to grow for a little while. Well, you know I'm being sarcastic, and really what I'm saying is it's, it's actually freezing out, and that's why the flowers are just all right? Okay, that was, that was actually incredible drama right there, in case you're keeping score. That was amazing. <laughs> in this, in the Greek language, this is called a first-class conditional statement. I'm, I'm trying to, I spent a lot of money in seminary. I want to use it at least once, so here we go. The idea is this, in the Greek, you take a conditional clause, if, that's a conditional clause, or a conditional word, and you add it to the present tense of the verb, and what you get is this first class conditional statement indicating that the assumption of truth is there for the sake of an argument. Okay, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense for any of us, so let me throw an illustration up there for you. First Corinthians 15, he says this, if, that's a conditional word, present tense. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Okay, we're not all rocket scientists, but I don't think any of us are going to be like, so is there really a natural body? Does, is, it like, is that real? He's saying for sake of argument, if there's a natural body, the assumption is, well, of course there's a natural body. Well, then there's also a spiritual body. And so here it's, it's being used the same way. If indeed you remain grounded, what's interesting, he actually elevates the certainty of the outcome by adding that word indeed in there. If indeed you remain, so, so what Paul is saying here is, if this is true and you remain, and I'm assuming it's true, then you will be presented faultless and blameless before God. Now, now what's interesting is, is that's not even the point of what he's saying here. It's just that's where we get our, our attention drawn to. 
The point of what he's saying follows this. If indeed you remain grounded and steadfast in the faith, you're not shifted away from the hope of the gospel that you heard. This gospel has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and I, Paul, have become a servant of it. He says, listen, do not run to any other hope. In the middle of all of this, you've heard the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. You have heard that Christ came to save sinners, of whom you are one. You've heard of that glorious hope. Do not run to another hope. Stay with the hope of the gospel that's set before you. The hope that one day soon we will stand before God faultless in great joy. That's our hope. We stay with that hope. We must run towards our perfect hope. What is that hope? Jesus. Our hope's Jesus. And only Jesus. You don't add anything to Jesus. The moment you add something, so, so and I used this before, but if you have perfection and you add to it, it ceases to be perfection. So a picture, you have a cake, it's perfect, just the perfect amount of sugar. You add just a little bit more sugar to it, no longer is it a delight, now it's a diabetic nightmare, okay? No, 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 it was perfect, don't mess with it. Don't add to it. Don't take away from it. The moment you touch something that is perfect, it ceases to be perfection. And he says, what we need to do is run towards our perfect hope. And our perfect hope isn't a what, it's a who. And his name is Jesus. And that's, that's where we want to go next is focus on that root. So let's turn back to verse 15. Verse, uh, sorry, Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. <laughs> yeah. Oh, baby. So, there is more in these next four verses than, than I mean, I could go for an hour and a half, and I'm not going to cover it all. I won't, because I love you. So, but, but bear with me. So, so, okay, he is the image of the invisible God. Wrap your head around that. Jesus Christ in human flesh, standing before us, is the image of of the invisible God. He is the visible of the invisible. Do you want to know who God is? Look at Jesus. That's where you see the very nature and the character of God. If you want to know who God is, you look at Jesus. When you watch Jesus work and and the way he deals with people, you get a great picture of who God is. So, so, so you want to know who, who God is? Then look at how Jesus handles the woman at the well when no other man would ever have spoken to her, yet Jesus does. You want to know who God is? Look at, look at how Jesus handles the woman at the well. Look at how Jesus demonstrates mercy and grace to the woman who was, who was caught up in adultery, and yet, yet he, he says, no, you know, I will not hold your sins against you either. Now go and sin no more. You want to know who, who God is? Look at how Jesus handles little Zacchaeus up in the tree. Hey, come on down. We're going to your house, let's eat, let's talk this out. You want to know who who God is? Look at how Jesus deals with the man born blind or how he deals with the woman on the side of the road who's got the issue of blood, who who just wants to touch him as he goes by. So the off chance that might heal her. Look at how he deals with her when he recognizes what it is she's doing. You want to know who God is? Look, Look at how Jesus deals with the lepers, the unclean of the society and the culture, those who should never be spoken to, much less touched. You want to know who God is? Look at how Jesus handles the Sadducees and the Pharisees. You want to know who God is? Look, look at Mark chapter 4 where you got the disciples out on the boat with Jesus. He's tired. He takes a nap. Amen. 
That, that godliness, nap, same thing. Just embrace it and go with it, okay? Okay, good. So he's taking a nap. This storm comes up and the wind and the waves are crashing against the boat. And we're told in Mark 4 that the waves are coming up over the edge of the boat and is in danger of being swamped. And the disciples run to where Jesus is sleeping in the boat and they say, wake up! Don't you care that we're going to die? And Jesus walks to the edge of the boat. The chaos, the storm, the wind, the waves. And he says, shush! I'm sleeping! He doesn't say that part. I'm just kidding. Sorry. He says, shush! (laughs) That was a little dad coming out. I'm sorry. Quiet! Peace. And as soon as he speaks, the wind and the waves stop. And it says that there was a great calm, that the sea became like glass. The disciples are in the corner of the boat, shaking in their boots. They're terrified. Who who is this? He's the image of the invisible God. You want to know who God is? That's God. You want to know who God is? Look Look at Jesus in John chapter 11 when he finds out that his friend Lazarus is dead. He tells his disciples, we're not going to go the way strategically you think we should go. Instead, we're going to head back towards Lazarus' hometown to deal with the fact that, that, that Lazarus is asleep. And his disciples, God love them, says, oh, Lazarus is asleep? Eh, he'll wake up on his own. And Jesus, <laughs> I, I, uh, you can see Jesus like, oh, these guys. He's dead. Oh, Okay. So they head back to Lazarus' hometown, and, and Martha, Lazarus' sister, meets Jesus and says, you know, if you had been here, he never would have died. And Jesus says to her, you know, Lazarus will rise. And Martha says, well, of course he will. On that last day, when we all rise, he'll rise. You, you almost can, can feel a little, little tinge of a smirk in Jesus' response. No, 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 you don't get it. He's going to rise today. Jesus makes his way to the tomb. And even though Lazarus has been in that tomb for four days, he orders them to roll the stone away. He stands at the mouth of that tomb and he says, Lazarus, you're not allowed to be dead. Come on out. Who gets to talk like that? Who gets to bring life where there's death? Only God. You want to know who God is? Look at Jesus, the image of the invisible God. But not only is he the image of the invisible God, it says that he is the firstborn over all creation. Okay. Ready to go to school? I nerded out a couple minutes ago. Now I'm going to do a little church history lesson for you. When we read that, the, 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 the firstborn over all creation, I mean, we think about birth order, firstborn, right? I mean, that's just common sense if you think about it. And actually, you go back to the fourth century in church history, you have this fellow named Arius. Arius would read this and took upon himself to create a new doctrine of the church that he would try to push, and that was this. Jesus was the first created being. So so in the beginning, there was God the Father, and that was it. But then at some point before all of humanity was created, God created Jesus. And so Arius began organizing his thoughts, creating letters, and and he would send information out. In fact, he, he understood the power of music, which is very interesting. He understood the power of music, and so he used to take his doctrines, he would compose jingles, and he would set the doctrines to music in those jingles, and one of them was found, and it says, there was a time when he was not. So there's no question what Arius is trying to teach, what he's proposing. 
Now, upon hearing what Arius was teaching and proposing, the bishop of his area, whose name was Alexander, was having none of it, and, and had Arius I don't, defrocked. I don't know if that was really a thing back in the day, but he's like, yup, yup. That's heresy, gone. And now, now here's an interesting thing that's happening in history at the same time. Now, now you've got Constantine, who has just come into power, and he's trying to unite the empire. He wants no disunity. He wants no disruption because he's trying to unite the empire. And he's embraced Christianity as the religion for the entire empire. And now he hears that in the midst of this, this religion that he's embracing for his entire empire, there's a, there's a, there's a spat going on. This guy, Arius, is causing problems. And, and, and Constantine's kind of like, listen, 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 here's the deal. Let's bring everybody together to Nicaea, figure it out. And so, all expense paid trip to Nicaea, which is in modern day Turkey, for 320 ish bishops. And they all had, now, now okay, so here, here's the crazy part. Now, I, um, I enjoy church history. This story of the Council of Nicaea gets me in the throat every time. Because if you don't put yourself, it, when you put yourself into the story and understand where they're coming from, it is unbelievable. So, so imagine this for a minute. So it was 12 years before this. So, so the Council of Nicaea happened in, in, in 325. You go to 313-ish. These Christians were literally running for their lives. These Christians were going through a persecution that is one of the gravest persecutions in all of history. Men were, with these bishops were, were having their hands scalded by, by um, fired up steel, so much so that their, their hands were fused together from the skin melting. And, then, and There were men who had their eyes gouged out. There were men who had their ears ripped off. There were all of these men. And so, so imagine this for a moment, being one of them who's running for your life. And then you get a note from the emperor like, hey, why don't you come to Nicaea? I'll pay. What is going through your head? Yeah, I don't know about that. But here come 320 of the bishops to Nicaea. And as they're walking into the room, historians have said that Constantine stood there and watched them come through and became just overcome with emotion. In fact, at one point, history tells us that he, he grabbed the head of one of the bishops whose eyes had been gouged out and he kissed both of his eyes. He sent them in to do their work. I mean, is this... The first time now. So, so now here in 325, you have these men who just 12 years earlier are running for their lives. And now they're sitting in a room of 320 other men who have been through the same persecution. And you're looking at each other saying, God is good. Can you believe this? Now let's deal with our issues. Now, Arius wasn't there to present at the Council of Nicaea because, first of all, he wasn't a bishop, and secondly, he had gotten kicked out a couple years earlier, remember that. So instead, he had a friend of his named Eusebius, great name, you can use that for your next child if you like, go knock yourself out, come here, Eusebius, <laughs> you just call him, hey, you, and it would work. Um, that was terrible, sorry, that was like a dad joke, Woo. thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, <laughs> that's what happens when I just go off the cuff, stuff like that happens. So Eusebius stands up in front of these 320 bishops, and um, we're told that he has the position of Arius in front of him. And what he is saying in this position paper, he's reading this, this paper, right? And, and in it, he's reading that, that, that at some point in history, God created Jesus. And, and, and although he may be the highest level of creation, 
He still is created. And what is amazing as Eusebius is reading this document, explaining to everybody this new doctrine that they would like to bring into play, the other bishops lose their minds. They start shouting him down. They rush the podium where he's standing and reading. They tear the speech out of his hand. They rip it up. They stomp on it. So it wasn't well received, if you're wondering. Now, I don't know if any of you remember. It was, it was probably 12, 14 years ago. Uh, Dan Brown's big book, The Da Vinci Code, had come out. And one of the things that was being said and claimed in that book was that back at this time at the Council of Nicaea, Constantine, the emperor, basically laid these disciples out, or sorry, these bishops out in the room and said to them, here's the deal, Jesus is divine. You get it? I'm the emperor, you're not. Jesus is divine. The second thing that Dan Brown made a claim to is that in that moment when the bishops gathered together to vote on if they were going to say Jesus was divine or if Jesus was just human, what was going to happen, it was, it was a very close vote, is what Dan Brown said. Now, reality. Let me deal with both of those. First, how many of you think that 320 bishops who just 12 years earlier refused to relent to anyone, never would recant their faith? In fact, so much so, they bore the scars of their faith on their body. We're going to look at the emperor and go, oh, you're the emperor? Okay. Yeah, no, that didn't happen. And when they voted on the Nicene Creed, the original one, it wasn't a close vote. It's 318 to 2. So evidently he keeps score like a Capitals fan. That's off the cuff too, go figure. But the Nicene Creed, <laughs> it comes out like this. This is, this is the original creed. We believe in one God the Father, the Almighty, creator of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, and is of the same essence with the Father. Not created, not born, co-eternal with the Father. Now, okay, that's all fine and good, Frank. That's the Nicene Creed, but we believe what the Bible says, not the creed. So what does the Bible say? I'm glad you asked because we are a Bible people. The book of John all the way throughout says Jesus is God. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus in the book of John actually says, my Father and I, we're one. We're one and of the same. So, so what about this firstborn thing? What about the firstborn over all creation? Well, I think we think about it as birth order when, in fact, another way that it is used most often, or not most often, but as often, is, is used again, uh, Psalm 89, 27. It says this, speaking of King David, I will also make him my firstborn, the greatest of the kings of the earth. Okay, time out. So is God making a claim in Psalm 89 he's going to reverse the birth order and make David the firstborn in birth order? Now, he's saying the same thing that he's saying here in Colossians chapter 1. David will be supreme. David will be the authority. David will be the highest king that we have. Jesus has ultimate authority. Jesus has ultimate supremacy. That's what he means when he's saying the firstborn over all creation. Jesus is an authority over everything that he created. Look at verse 16. Because everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, visible, invisible, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. So, so he created everything. It was all created through him. It was created 
for him. Let me, let me, let me, uh, we got time? Yeah, we got time. So when you understand that Jesus is the one who created everything, then it really should cause you to listen to his commands in a different way. So, so if I'm the one who created this system and I'm saying, listen, this is how you make it work, well, then you would listen to me differently than if I'm just Joe Schmo coming off the street like, you know what I think you should do? I think you should just give it a little more gas. It'll work fine. But see, what Jesus does here is he created everything. All of it was created by him, through him. His hands were on all of it. So when he gives us a command, we should listen to it, understanding that what he's doing for us is trying to tell us how to live in ultimate joy the way it was created to be. Instead of looking at him like, you're just trying to ruin all my fun. So, so parents, I'm going to be very careful. But the, the one that comes to mind right away is so our view of sex. God created that. Jesus created that. It's not, it's not like we stumbled on it. I'm like, oh, hey, it's not like Jesus in the garden looked down and like, what are they doing? Stop it! <laughs> Jesus created that intentionally and on purpose. And so when he gives us his view, his rules, his understanding of the sexual relationship, he's not trying to be some cosmic killjoy sitting on this throne like, no fun for you. He's saying, I understand how it works. I made it. Listen to me, and I will lead you into the pathway of real joy. See, God created all things, everything. And so the creator is trying to explain to us little created ones. There's actually greater joy. What's amazing, too, is not only did he create it, it's created for him. Everything that has been created points back to Jesus. So get this, every dog that barks, every cow that moos, every bird that chirps, every pig that is bacon, glorious bacon, right? <laughs> every, every rain cloud that drops rain, every time the sun shines, every time the moon comes up over the horizon, every time you see a star twinkling, or in this week, I don't know if any of you got to see it, any of the shooting stars crossing the sky, Every time those things happen, it's happening to the glory of Jesus Christ. It's all for him, and it's all for his glory. In fact, so much so, wrap your head around this, chapter, uh, verse 18, he's also the head of the body of the church. Okay, we're like, oh, that's kind of a, oh, okay, whatever. No, 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 no. And it's not like this org chart. I mean, we do have that org chart. Jesus is the head of the church, and then the rest of it flows out from that. No, no, no. Understand this. He's saying he created all things, and all things are created through him and for him, and he's the ultimate goal of all of creation so that he might get the glory, and he is the head of the church. Why? So that he might get the glory. Not only does he lead us in how we do things and what we should do, he is there so that he would receive the ultimate glory. He is there allowing and, and permitting the church to continue to grow. And I don't mean Uniontown Bible Church. I mean the church universal. Think about this. With Jesus, there is no such thing as a closed country. He just keeps going and bringing the gospel and bringing the church and it keeps exploding wherever it goes, whether it be Syria or Iraq or, <coughs> excuse me, Iran or Turkey. It doesn't matter. Where all these places, the church continues to explode. And it's a perfect picture of what it is that Jesus said, isn't it? I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell will not stand against it. I think sometimes we think the gates of hell are attacks coming at us, but the gates of hell are a defensive mechanism. The gates are what you put up to stop things from coming. And Jesus says, build as many gates as you want, hell. I'm going to steamroll those things. 
And through the power and the authority of Jesus Christ and who he is, he is building his church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead so that he might come to have first place in everything. He's the firstborn of the dead. Again, think about it. He is the authority. He is important. He is the rank over all. See, what happens in this moment and he, is, 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 is Jesus lays down his life on the cross. He's crucified. He cries out, it is finished. He commits his spirit into the Father's hands. He's dead. He's laid in the tomb. And in that moment, it's either put up or shut up. Because in that moment that he's in the tomb, it all comes down to what happens next. He's made all these claims, all of these promises, but he's dead. Now what? I'll tell you what now. Romans chapter 1 verse 4, it says that God declared Jesus Christ to be the authoritative and real son of God when he rose him again from the dead. When, when Jesus came out of the tomb, he said, see, I told you. I got it all covered. The, my, my, the price that I paid was more than enough. The authority that I claim to have is evidenced by my resurrection. Which brings us all the way back to verse 19. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. And through him to reconcile everything to himself, whether things on earth, things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. That supreme God, that authoritative and powerful Jesus, as God looked at him, he was pleased. God was pleased with his plan to show up. God knew from the beginning of time that he would come in human flesh to reconcile and redeem us. That, that plan of God in flesh or, or incarnation, it pleased him. Do you understand that? It pleased him. Ephesians chapter 1 says it was, it was a pleasure to him. It brought him great delight when he con contemplated the, the reconciliation of his children to himself. You know that it still puts a smile on God's face even though he understood what he was going to get out of the deal. Do you know that he knew it would be you? It still pleased him. It still brought him delight to show up in flesh and to lay on the cross for you. Yeah, I think many of us don't know that. I think many of us forget that. And that's why when we screw up, we run away from him instead of run to him. And we, we should be running to him. I think, I think that depends on how you hear the voice of God in the garden in Genesis chapter 3. I think after, after the sin had occurred and, and God comes back to the garden after Adam and Eve had eaten of the fruit, he comes in and you, you hear his voice. And, and, and I think too often we hear, where are you? Why are you hiding? That's, that's the heartbreak of the father was, where are you? Something happened. Do you eat the fruit? It brings God pleasure to know that you are his. And God knows everything about you. He always has. You don't have secrets from God. He knows your actions. He knows your words. He knows your thoughts. And yet because of Jesus and his death on the cross for your sins, he's pleased when he looks on you. 
So my brother and my sister, you're in Christ. Please know. He's pleased with you because of Christ. Yeah, but Frank, I messed up again. Absolutely, you did. And guess what? Here's good news. You can do it again tomorrow. So fall on your face before him and confess your sin. And you know what? He is faithful and just. He's going to forgive you your sin. He's faithful to forgive your sin. That means he's going to do it time and time again. He is just to forgive your sin. He's not going to make you pay for it because Jesus already paid for all of it. In Jesus, God's pleased with you. But what if you're not in Jesus? Well, well then, that full cup of God's wrath is going to be poured out on you instead of it being taken by Jesus. Okay, what does it, what does it mean to be in Jesus? It, it, it means simply this. It means admitting that, that you're a sinner. It's understanding that in your sin you've been separated from God. You've been alienated from God. In your sin, you've been hostile towards God. It's understanding that even on your best day, you need a righteousness that isn't your own because on your best day, it still falls well short of what it is that God expects from you. To be in Jesus means to admit that you're a sinner, but it also means to confess that Jesus is who he said he was, the Son of God who came to save sinners. So while saying you're a sinner might hurt your your soul a little bit, the reality is to ignore the fact that you're a sinner is to ignore the healing for your soul which came in Jesus. So so to to be in Jesus is to say, Jesus, I, I, I am trusting in nothing else, no one else, not myself, not my works. I am leaning on Jesus and Jesus alone to gain me reconciliation with God the Father. I have nothing else. So, so again, my brother and sister, some of you are like, man, I don't know if I'm really saved. I'm like, well, okay, that's all fine and good. You may not remember the day. You don't have to remember the date. You may not remember the moment. You don't have to remember the moment. The question is, in this moment right now, what, where's your hand? Are you leaning on Jesus for access or are you going to try to get in yourself? Because if you're leaning on Jesus, good news, you're in Christ. But if you continue to insist that you're good enough to get in yourself, then what you've just done is reject Jesus Christ. There's only two options. I mean, the question is, what are you going to do with Jesus? There's only two options. Are you going to receive him? Are you going to reject him? For those of us who are in Christ, may we forever be thankful for what it is he's done for us and for who he is. Would you pray with me? God, as I, as I pray, I ask that you would work. I can't, <laughs> it may be surprising to some, I, I know I can't yell anybody into the kingdom. Um, and I know there's people sitting in this room who aren't in Jesus. I fear that some people in this room have, have told themselves that they can wait and that this isn't a rejection, this is just a waiting. Lord, I fear that many in this room may see you one day and cry out, Lord, didn't we do all good works in your name? Only to hear you say, depart, I never knew you. So Lord, I ask for the ones who are in this room wrestling in their hearts right now. Lord, help them to yield. 
help them just to confess what, what their life demonstrates every day, that they're a sinner. And that may they cling to the glorious good news that Christ came to save sinners. And then for my brothers and sisters who sit here and sometimes are, are just a little discouraged, Lord, lift their souls today. Remind them that, that in Christ, they stand before you faultless, blameless, which we cannot wrap our heads around. So Lord, I ask as we attempt to wrap our heads around that, that we would be a thankful people who rejoice and celebrate the goodness of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.